So, so I want to know who told you to ask me for that much money. Well, nobody told me to ask you. Oh, somebody did. I mean, I'm one of 800 parishioners in this parish. The campaign goal is a million dollars. Why would you ask me for 25%? One out of 800 families, 25%. The, the math doesn't work, Peter. Who put you up to this? And I said, um, I, I, nobody put me up to this. Um, I, I said, we, if you give a quarter million dollars, we're going to build a bigger building. Why? Who put you up to he? I think what he was really trying to do is ask me which particular employee of his who was part of the parent and her volunteer put me up to asking him for this big gift. And I said, I finally said, sir, nobody put me up to this. I'm the one who told father we should ask you for a quarter of a million dollars because you have the capacity to give that gift. If you give it, we're going to build a bigger building. It'll be more impactful on the church. We will be very successful in this campaign. And, I, and I'm sorry if you were offended. Oh, well, you shouldn't have done this, blah, 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 blah. He gave a gift of $125,000. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories, and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. We are in for a real treat this week. I had the incredible privilege of getting to speak with Peter DeCaratree, who is one of the most accomplished fundraisers we've had on this show and ever will have on this show. Uh, there are few people with uh, more experience and results than Peter DeCaratree, and I'm about to read you his introduction. Uh, a couple things just to, a little bit different about this episode. I'm going to read his introduction, and then Peter, uh, we had quite a lengthy conversation about how he got into fundraising, but it lasts about 15 minutes or so, and so I'm going to put that at the very end of this episode for those of you who want to listen to it. Um, I know most of you come here just to hear the stories about visits, and so I'm going to try to get into that sooner rather than later. So if you want to hear Peter's full kind of description of his career, go wait until the very end of the episode and you'll get that there. But anyway, here is Peter's incredible history in fundraising. Another quick thing. Even Peter's bio is incredibly lengthy because he's so he's done so many different incredible things. And so even me just reading that takes up quite a bit of time. So if you want to get right into the stories, just skip to about the uh, about the eight minute mark. Um, I didn't want to take any of this information out because it's all relevant and incredibly valuable. But go ahead and skip to about the eight minute mark if you want to get right into the stories. With more than 25 years of experience in fund development, Peter DeCaratry has worked in a variety of professional settings, beginning as a college student at Texas A&M, where he served as development director for St. Mary's Catholic Center at Texas A&M and oversaw a $5 million campaign for new facilities while an undergraduate student. Following his time in College Station, DeCaratry served at a diverse group of organizations as a fundraising consultant campaign director, and fundraising executive. He has worked in parishes, dioceses, schools, associations, and a diverse array of nonprofit settings, including an international cultural center and museum built to honor Pope St. John Paul II. 
In addition to extensive work in sustainable fund development roles, he has overseen campaigns with goals ranging from $1 million to $350 million. He served as campaign director for the Citadel Foundation with responsibility for the planning and implementation of a $100 million campaign to fund endowments, facilities, and operations at the Military College of South Carolina. In 1994, Peter became co-founder of Petrus Development and has advised numerous clients, including the Vatican Observatory Foundation, Benedictine College, the University of Marion, Kansas, and various Catholic ministry centers at large public and private universities. From 2010 to 2014, Peter served as the Director of Resource Development for the Archdiocese of Brisbane in Australia. Then from 2014 to 2016, he served as Campaign Manager and Interim Director of Development for the Archdiocese of Chicago and its To Teach Who Christ Is campaign. With a goal of $350 million, the campaign eventually raised more than $420 million in commitments. Peter has been a speaker on a variety of fundraising topics, including campaigns, major gifts, sustainable development programs, building a culture of cultivation, soliciting gifts, the case for support, and other topics. He has been a speaker at several national and international conferences for the Association of Fundraising Professionals, the Fundraising Institute of Australia, the Italian Fundraising Conference, the International Catholic Stewardship Council, the National Catholic Development Conference, the Petrus Leadership Institute, and others. In 2016, Peter and his family settled in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where he serves as the Executive Director of Stewardship and Development. After raising 165% of the goal of the first comprehensive campaign in the diocese, he currently oversees all aspects of a multifaceted fund development program, including annual giving, parish support, major gifts for projects, special events, and a State of Oklahoma tax credit program benefiting low-income students. He is past chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals International Development Committee and serves on the board of the International Catholic Stewardship Council. He has been a certified fundraising executive since 1999. Peter graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in speech communication from Texas A&M University and completed a Master of Arts degree in philanthropy and development from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. He resides in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, with his wife Colleen and their four children. He is an active member of the Order of Malta and volunteers in his local parish with the Sarah Club of Oklahoma City and with Sister BJ's Pantry serving the homeless in Oklahoma City. As you can hear, Peter has an extraordinary background in fundraising. Uh, I mean, the, the largest capital campaign finished in the Catholic Church in the United States, over $350 million raised. This guy is the real deal. Uh, listen closely to everything he says. Another thing you'll notice about this episode is uh, I do a lot less speaking and a lot more listening in this in this conversation because Peter has so much wisdom and experience, and I'm just so happy that we were able to have him on the show. And as always, I want to give a shout out to our most recent review on Apple Podcasts from Sean D. Sean says that. This podcast is like going to a world-class conference from the comfort of your home or during your commute. And I really uh, I really appreciate that because 
as we're interviewing these, you know, major gift fundraisers of the highest uh, levels of performance, it really is. I mean, me just getting to listen to these people and speak with them is incredible. So thank you, Sean D., for your review, and thank you for all the wonderful guests we're having that are making this show so valuable. I hope you enjoy this incredible conversation with Peter DeCaratry. Welcome to One Visit Away, Peter. Thanks so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. You know, Peter, I could ask you so many different uh, questions and we could all learn a lot. But if you'd like, could we just jump right into the stories and you want to start out with one of your favorite visits? You know, I have a lot of favorite stories. Um, I'll tell you one from early in my career, though, because I think it's really an important lesson for particularly young fundraisers to know. Um, I was a student at Texas A&M. I was in my early 20s, probably 21 or 22 years old at the time. I used to go down and call on a man in San Antonio, which was about a four-hour drive from College Station. And and I got to know him a little bit because every time I went to San Antonio, I would call him and he would agree to see me and I would go to his office and he'd buy me a cup of Coke and you know we'd have a chat. And his wife was sick with cancer and so we got to know him a little bit. Anyway, uh, eventually I worked up the nerve, and this didn't happen overnight, but eventually worked up the nerve to ask him for a gift. And I I think we asked him for $10,000 or something. And he said, yes, of course, we'll make a gift. He said, but, but Peter, I, w- I want you to really know something, because I don't think you have quite clued into this yet. He said, Peter, I, as, a, as an alum, as a f- parent, as a friend of this ministry— I care about St. Mary's every bit as much as you do. I mean, you're more personal with it. You're on the staff and you're there. But he said, I don't think you realize that as a donor, my outlet for participation is in giving. So I'm going to give you money to help you build this building. I may end up giving you more than you asked for, actually. He said, but next year, I expect you to be in my office asking me for a gift to the annual fund. Because... I'm going to help you build this building, but I really care that you're able to pay the electric bill next year. And he said, you've got to get in your mindset that your donor constituency are people who love the ministry. I mean, I'm not giving because I've got a great relationship with Peter DeCaratry or Father Mike. I'm giving because I care about (coughs) evangelizing 18 to 22 year old undergraduates at Texas A&M that are going to go on and be leaders of the church. And I got to tell you, Kevin, that was a profound early experience for me because it made me realize that I, through my career, by the way, I, I've, I've asked for money for a lot of things, some of which I care deeply about and some of which I don't. Yeah. But the donor almost always cares about the thing they're giving to more than I do. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, and it's a transaction that says the donor's priority, the donor's interest in that ministry is every bit as profound as my own. So, yeah. so I, I thought that was a great lesson learned and yeah. sure enough, you know, he, he's still a supporter of the ministry today, by the way, you know, 20 years yeah. later. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and one thing I'll comment on with that, I think that's a really good point is that, that you brought up, he's not giving because of you. He's not giving because of the priest. One of the biggest dangers we can get into as fundraisers is if people are giving because of us. And, uh, and so, because the problem is once you leave, 
what happens to uh, that ministry because you're you're going to leave for one reason yeah. either because you die or you get fired or you quit. So, uh, you, so you may have heard of have you ever heard of fundraising 101 the the little week long course that's been it's, it's at the University of Indiana. No. That yeah. Fundraising 101's been going on for decades and it's it's a it's a fairly expensive course to go through but Father Mike sent me there in probably 1993 94 early on in our process. He he sent me up and I I stayed with uh the, the development director actually for the Catholic Student Center at Purdue, uh, Grace Lechtenberg, it was her name. Hmm. Anyway, um, I went to this course and I still remember something profound that this this professor, Jim Greenfield, who's the guy who taught the course, he's, he's actually a, a hospital fundraiser in, in California. And he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a story and I'm telling you this because it's an important lesson that will hopefully resonate with you. He said, we hire at our foundation lots of young fundraisers. You know, the people who we can afford in California are usually people who aren't married. They're right out of college. They're, I yeah. can, you know, I can hire them for, you know, because anybody who's got a home and a dog and a cat and a child and yeah. go to school yeah. in California, but it's so expensive. You, so you hire the young entry-level right. fundraisers. And right. what happens is, is that that young 20 something comes to work for us and we, we have an event and we, we, we get a committee of people to help host the events. And the person who hosts the event invites the committee and the young staff member to go on the boat for the afternoon on a Saturday to plan the gala. And maybe a few weeks later, they invite them to come to the club for the follow-up meeting to plan the gala. And then we have the gala and it's an amazing experience. Everybody's happy. And then that young staff member might not realize that they are not invited to go on the boat or to the club as a personal friend of the donor. They're there as the staff person representing the organization, the hospital. Right. And the, the, the blurring of those lines can be very challenging sometimes. And, and I would just suggest to you that the default position has to be, my relationship to the donor is as a representative of the organization, even if we become friends. Yeah. And even if I'm now a former member of the staff of that organization, we have to remember that the conduit of that relationship is me representing the organization. So for example, here in Oklahoma city, if I build a donor relationship with someone, I will always be seen as the guy representing the archbishop of Oklahoma city and the ministry of the church. At the Citadel, yeah. I represented the Military College of South Carolina. Now, can we enjoy meaningful friendships with donors over time? Sure, that happens. Absolutely. Some of my best friends in life are donors to organizations that I've worked for. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the default position is I represent the organization and through me as a conduit, not as a best bud friend from childhood, uh, is the relationship. So. It's it's a hard lesson sometimes, um, yeah. But it is what it is, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's really great. That's yeah. I, I mean, it's amazing how long those those lessons can can stick with you and uh, that you learn early on. And I can't remember what I had for lunch today, but I remember something from twenty five years ago from this guy taught me in this class. Right? And it's yeah, it's, yeah. It was, it was profound, and and I, I think people who are doing fundraising will resonate with. You know, if, if you're brand yes. new to fundraising, you've never had a don donor relationships, it's hard to understand that. But 
but when your your job is to cultivate meaningful relationships between the donor and the organization, the donor and the ministry. And if you if you do that, then you're you're going to be personal with them. And, and yes, that's why I think if you're a, the diocesan fundraising person, you've got to be a practicing Catholic. I think you have to be able to go to mass with your donors if you're talking about. I, I want you to be able to go to the ordination mass of the seminarians, the donor help fund. Yeah. For me, you know, yeah. Um, I don't think everybody who works for the church has to be a Catholic, but I think the proactive fundraiser who's meaningfully engaged in raising money for specific ministry, I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, that's a great point. So how about uh, any other favorite stories you'd like to share? You know, okay. I'll give you a favorite one from more recently. Um, there is a, a, a woman in Chicago um, who is a devout, loving Catholic. Um, when when we went on this visit, she was 93 years old at that time. She's still living, and so wow. she'd be 98, I think now. Wow. Um, she uh, and I talked a, a little bit about the future of the church in Chicago and one of her really impactful, uh, important things to her items was she did not view the, uh, the young mom who was teaching second grade at the parish as having been properly formed to be able to then go teach religious education to children. Disconnect between asking the, you know, the mom who grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s to teach religious ed to the child today. And if, if they didn't have any formation to start with, then how could they effectively pass on to the next generation the deposit of faith and knowledge of the church? Yeah. So one of my favorite things in the world to do is to identify in a donor what is meaningful, meaningfully important to them and then finding something in our organizational structure and need where I could put the two together into the major donor relationship. And because there's nothing more impactful than seeing a donor who gives a gift and the separation from those dollars is nothing compared to the reality of what's important to them in their lives. And it becomes so much more important than the money. And in this case, um, uh, we asked that donor to fund a program at Mundelein Seminary which would teach lay people how to be better catechists. Yeah. Uh, and it was just a great uh, meeting and a great uh, uh, day. Uh, the, the gift itself was fantastic, but I just want to tell you uh, the nuance of the meeting. Everybody in the room was uh, very good friends with Francis Cardinal George probably me least of all. I, I worked for him and I only knew him for a few months, but he had died by this point. And uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who you know, the Word on Fire Ministry, was in the room. Yeah. Another priest was in, a couple of priests in the room, people from on the line were in the room, talking to this potential donor. And uh, we, were, we were all in some way had referenced Cardinal Francis George in, in, the, um, in the conversation. And Bishop Barron, in this very spiritual and pastoral way, just can, can we just pause for a minute? I, I know this is an important conversation, but. I just think we should all stop and pray for a minute. Uh, every person in this room has 
brought up Cardinal George in one way or another. And we just buried him a few weeks ago, you know, in the cemetery just down the street, actually. Yeah. Uh, he said, I, I kid you not. I feel like he's in this room. <laughs> and Kevin, I mean, not a dry eye in the place and the hackles on the back of your neck are standing up. And I'm telling you what, it, it was a, for me as a Catholic, a very mystical experience of thinking that Francis yeah. Cardinal George, who, who dearly loved the, the woman who was considering the gift, uh, who everybody in the room was part of his team. It was just a beautiful moment of ministry at the same time as fundraising and all tied together. Yeah. The donor ultimately made the gift. Um, it's fun actually talking about funny stories. She called me uh, <laughs> a few months later and said, how did you, I, I don't, how did I make a pledge to you? So I stopped giving pledges back in my seventies. <laughs> <laughs> back when I was a young woman. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Really funny. But um, uh, anyway, it's just a great personal, meaningful moment of the actual asking process. You know, there are multiple meetings that led up to the, the ask that, Strategy with Mundelein, strategy with the diocese, strategy with everybody involved to address yeah. her unique issue. Yeah. It worked. And it all yeah. kind of got tied together. It was great. And it, wow. it was really, you know, profound. Wow. Uh, it was great. So I'm curious, did she tell you why she stopped giving pledges? Like, was this, was this gift Well, it's all her? about her age. Yeah, yeah. She okay. was afraid of her mortality. You know, she did not want yeah. to make a multi-year commitment because she... She uh, didn't think she'd live long enough to pay her pledge and didn't want to burden anybody else in her family or anything else. And so yeah. she made one-off gift only until she made this one. Pretty cool. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So what's the – yeah, I, I think a lot of those those favorite visit kind of things, they're, they're not so much about the amount. It's, you know, something happened that was just deeply meaningful to – either you or the benefactor and uh, clearly that's what happened with this woman. And so I think, yeah, well, one question I'll have is any more stories like that, like deeply meaningful kind of experiences you've had? Well, I'll, I'll tell you about a worst visit story that was meaningful. Um, (laughs) You know, people are scared to death to ask for money, right? So you, you hesitate to tell stories where the donor gets angry, but in my I've been in fundraising 25 years. I've asked and been part of asking for a lot of gifts. It is very, very, very rare that a donor has ever actually gotten angry about the ask amount. You know, most of the time, if you ask somebody for a gift that's out of their ballpark, they're really, really flattered. You know, oh, my goodness. We used to be able to think about gifts like that back when we still had our company. But now those days are long gone, you know. Your $2.5 million request is, you know, five times bigger than they ever considered. But you still end up with a half million dollar gift or right. or something's yeah. happened in their family that you have no knowledge of. And they don't get angry. They just or occasionally you'll have somebody get a little embarrassed. Say, you know, actually, we're getting divorced and it's it's yeah. not a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No. Let <laughs> me back up a little bit. <laughs> anyway, but but I, I was part of um, when I first went to work for CCS. One of my early projects was to go to Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is two hours from here. And uh, it was a great few weeks for me to do this little campaign for a little parish in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. It's called St. Sounds John. like a booming economic uh, center of, of the state. 
Well, it shouldn't matter. Bartlesville at its peak was uh, Bartlesville <laughs> home of Phillips Petroleum. Okay. And it was a company town. And so just up the street would be uh, Ponca City, Oklahoma, where Continental Petroleum was based. You know, all these little mm. oil companies that are now these massive corporations based in Houston or wherever. Yeah. Started in little towns in Oklahoma back in the day. Tulsa in 1920 mm. was a much bigger oil town than Houston in and then all those companies just kind of con- consolidated to Houston. I mean, there's still big companies here, but nothing like Houston. Anyway, uh, the, the the campaign at this little parish um, uh, was to you know tear down the old rectory that had been there for literally a hundred years and replace it with a little modern office building and a few meeting rooms for the parish, a little library. And the goal was, I think, a million dollars, something like that. Anyway, one of the volunteers on the committee made a gift of, I think, $100,000. And so our biggest potential donor was the kind of CEO of the company at the time. And Mm. so I sent Father on this meeting with a packet to ask the guy for a quarter of a million dollars. And Father comes back and says, now, Peter, he – it didn't take too well to the ask amount. Um, and he's going to call you. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Um, why, why is he going to call me? He said, well, because I told you the one who told me to ask him. <laughs> anyway, sure enough, the CEO of the school and gas company comes over. He wouldn't let me come to his office. He came to my office, which was in the attic space of this old junky hundred year old house, literally kind of up three crickety flights of stairs. And he came up and set my little room. That was a, you know, kind of former broom closet kind of a space. So, so I want to know who told you to ask me for that much money. And I said, uh, well, nobody told me to ask you. Oh, somebody did. I mean, I'm one of 800 parishioners in this parish. The campaign goal is a million dollars. Why would you ask me for 25%? One out of 800 families. 25%. The, the math doesn't work, Peter. Who put you up to this? And I said, um, I, I, nobody put me up to this. Um, I, I said, we, if you give a quarter million dollars, we're going to build a bigger building. I mean, it's, <laughs> and, and it's not like it's equal gifts from everybody. He's like, no, right. but come on. I'm just one of 800. I was like, but you're the CEO. You're the one with all the money. And the, the line yeah, yeah. doesn't have any money. And I said, you know, I mean, we do this stewardship thing is equal sacrifice, not equal gifts. And some people are going to get bigger gifts, some people are going to get smaller gifts. I mean, you're going to be people in this parish who struggle mightily to make an $1,800 pledge, $50 a month for the next five years. Yeah. And I said, but that's, we're not going to ask you for $1,800. Oh, you should have. You should, we, we should all be asked for the same amount. Why? Who put you up to he? I think what he was really trying to do is ask me which particular employee of his who was part of yeah. the and her volunteer put me up to asking him for this big gift. And I said, I finally said, sir, nobody put me up to this. I, I'm the one who told father we should ask you for a quarter of a million dollars because you have the capacity to give that gift. If you give it, we're going to build a bigger building. It'll be more impactful on the church. Yeah. We will be very successful in this campaign. And, I, and I'm sorry if you were offended. Oh, well, you shouldn't have done this, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he gave a gift of $125,000. So... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> What's funny is I, I I told him I said you realize that one of your VPs already gave a gift of a hundred. I mean, what, 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 did you want us to ask you for less? And yeah. he's like, 
well, okay. <laughs> you know, but it, you know, in, in truth of the matter, wow. Kevin, I don't think he was trying to be mean or angry. In his mind, if you do a campaign, everybody should give the same amount of money. You know, yeah. he, he was. It, it, and if you're not in philanthropy, if you don't have an appreciation yeah. for stewardship, the idea that because I've been blessed with more does not necessarily translate into I should be giving more. I mean, let's keep it equal and fair. And yeah, well, yeah. I, I so wonder. If, <laughs> I wonder if he also thinks that he should spend the same on his housing as uh, everyone else. Um, right. So <laughs> I, you know, who knows what was going through his mind? But suffice to say, that was an awkward, rough meeting. Yeah. But the at the end of the day, a couple of things. One is that the yes. fundraiser took the blame, so that the, the the CEO, the priest, in this case, did not have to. Yep. I mean, I took it. You know, and sometimes you just have to be the person who puts their hand up and says, my fault. Absolutely. I'm and, and father still looks good. Right. Yeah. And, or, or the executive director still looks good. And you know what? It is more important for the organizational success and long term for the CEO to be seen as the positive good. And if there's a mistake made, it's part of the CEO's experience of mistake. Yes. But you sometimes it's your job as a fundraiser to take that bullet. So, to yeah, speak. yeah. And that that is what happened in this case. And the guy ultimately gave a major, major gift that helped us do the project. And we did go over goal, and it was a beautiful thing, you know. So, was that one hour experience of my life um, a bit of a challenge? Yes, it was. But you know what? It it uh, it was great. That is such a good story. I <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but I will tell you, in twenty five years of fundraising, I bet I have less than a half a dozen stories like that where a donor actually came in angry and yeah. expressed their anger. The vast majority of times that you ever miss an ask amount, truly it becomes a, you know, a, oh, I, I remember back when we could give gifts like that. I'm sorry. We just can't do that anymore. You know? Yeah. And, and because fundraising is art and science and you have to just, yeah. but you have to ask or you don't get. Yeah, exactly. I think so many things. My, my most common experience personally and what i've heard from others is if the ask is for just you know way too much it's completely out of line and this this ask was not out of line for this guy he just seemed to be very paranoid about it sounded like he he thought there were certain people out to get him and this was just the kind of thing they would do but most people if the ask is just you know way out of line laughter is the usual response like what you were saying like it's <laughs> you kidding me? that's that's cute <laughs> that you are yeah. By the way, I, I'll just point out, I have followed uh, this particular donor for many years. I, I've never, ever had any personal interaction with him, but I know of him. Yeah. And he's become an incredibly generous steward yeah. of his resources yes. and has funded dozens of amazing yes. ministries and nonprofits in the church and all around. And, and this is an amazing character. Uh, so what started as a bad meeting has turned into a wonderful life of philanthropy and giving. It's great. Yeah. And I think that's part of it too, is I, I see part of my uh, vocation as a fundraiser is to help people increase in generosity. It's not just, uh, I mean, there's a lot of like you going out there and asking this guy for a gift that he thought was completely absurd uh, opened him up to the possibility of maybe I should be given gifts like this. And so it sounds like, yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. When I was on the, the Pope John Paul II cultural center project, there were lots of fun gifts around that whole project, but, um, 
here's a story you don't hear every day. I, we, Cardinal Maida, the Archbishop of Detroit, who was the one who founded the JP2 Cultural Center and and really had this dream of building this facility to honor uh, who would become St. John Paul II. Um, and he, he worked tirelessly. And, and it, look, we all make mistakes, ups and downs in life. And, and, um, and, and the cultural center ended up having some major structural issues. But at, at the end of the day, his heart was in the right place. And I absolutely believe the JP2 Center is a wonderful, positive resource for the church to learn about the life and legacy of St. John Paul II and many other things. Anyway, I, we did a reception in Newark, New, Je- New Jersey, a long time ago. And um, uh, it happened to be on the same night as the Al Smith dinner in New York City. So the Al Smith dinner is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous in New York City, but it, it draws people from Connecticut, New Jersey, surrounding states. So when we decided to do our little fundraising event for the JP2 Center in New Jersey, turned out all the wealthy people that we would normally have hoped to have in the room to hear about this dream of building this Pope John Paul II cultural center. We're all in New York at this other dinner and we thought it was a bus, but there were some five or six very nice couples that showed up and five or six priests and a pretty small, modest crowd. uh, And, and, but you know, we did our reception, we did our dog and pony show and we, we went home to the hotel and, um, I went to a hotel near the airport. I was flying back to DC the next morning, to Detroit the next morning. But I got a call on my cell phone from one of the priests who was at the event. He said, "Peter, I, I have a question. Um, it's a little awkward, but um, are, are priests allowed to give?" Um, and I said, "Well, sure." So we had set up this. Um, donor program so that if somebody gave $100,000, we called them a trustee of the JP2 Cultural Center. Uh, and we had levels, 100000 250 a million, and ultimately $2.5 million and more. And he said, well, I just wanted to see if, if a priest could become a trustee. He said, I, I inherited some money, and I have a great deal of positive things to say about Pope St. John, or at the time, Pope John Paul II. Yeah. And um, if I'm allowed, uh, I'll give $100,000 and become a trustee of the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're allowed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, we can make an exception. <laughs> oh, I don't care if Mr. Reverend doesn't matter to me. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, of course, wow. then, then he got me thinking, well, maybe I should ask. But turns out we actually had two priests or three priests that ended up making big gifts. And wow. secular priests in the diocese do not take vows of poverty. Yeah. Um, many of them live a life of poverty because we don't pay our men and, and secular priests very much. But the truth of the matter is they don't take a vow of poverty. So if they inherit money or if they had money before yeah. they became a priest or whatever, you know, they, they can have wealth. And some of them do. Yeah. And sure enough, if he gave a hundred thousand dollars and a couple of years yeah. later, my wife and I took him to dinner in DC and uh, were able to secure his upgrade from 100 to 250 and, uh, wow. And he's just a very generous. He, a couple died and left him some money to be able to support Catholic causes. Yeah. And so he does. And he travels and he, he just does a great job of, of sharing what he's been giving with others. That's cool. The whole stewardship mentality with this priest is is awesome. And he yeah. has really invested his money well and gives away a lot of money. And 
and funny enough, uh, you know, even you never know what's going to happen in receptions and getting the right people in the room. Yep. Um, that evening, one of the other couples that was there ultimately gave a million dollars and had been very wow. involved in that ministry and helped building that building. Um, I remember back at Texas A&M when we were trying to build a, a, a group of people who could eventually build, you know, be get asked and, and give the money to build the, the St. Mary Center. We didn't know anybody. So we did 33 receptions all over the state of Texas and Louisiana. We did one in D.C., yeah. different places where we would ask a local person to host a reception and invite their friends and family and extend it, anybody they knew in the Aggie network. And I had Bishop John McCarthy from Austin and Bishop Archbishop Fiorenza of Houston, both at the Petroleum Club in, in Houston for an event. There were 14 people that showed up. We were so embarrassed. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, I'm sorry, guys, you know, Bishop, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it blew all the way down and the whole nine yards. And he said, Peter, I still remember him saying this, Peter, you, you don't have any control. You, you did the work, you invited the people, but, but never underestimate. You, you never know what's going to happen with the hearts and minds of the people in the room. Yep. And, and it was a very pastoral thing that he was intending to say. And it's true, yeah. but it's also a very stewardship philanthropy worldview. Those yeah. 14 people ended up giving right at a million dollars of the total 4.9 million we raised in the wow. total. Wow. I mean, it was a, a wonderful uh, outcome from a very small group. And the same thing happened with the, the reception later in New Jersey, you know, about, uh, but it's just funny. Can I give the gift? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those stories to me just illustrate the importance of one activity and being in front of people uh, because philanthropy happens in person. And then also uh, just this idea of not, I, I, I can't stand it because I know of stories like this and I've seen it happen. You cannot assume anything about people's wealth. Yes. And, and the other thing is you never know what somebody's values are. I mean, yes. I, I, the, in this campaign in Archdiocese, Oklahoma City, um, we, we asked for a lot of gifts, and we asked for really big gifts and everything in between. And I mean, there's some people you, you you do some basic research and you understand yes, they have the capacity if they choose to give a gift of a million dollars or two million dollars or whatever the numbers. Other people you just don't know. Can you think of any particularly like? enormous gifts that you'd like to share a story. If it's okay, if you don't want to, sometimes those are overrated. <laughs> yeah, no, I, listen, I, I want to tell you three more stories. All right. So you're going to yeah. get three. And, and, and these three Please. stories are um, lessons learned. Okay. So the first is I went to go see a man when I was working at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, I drove down to Atlanta and I went to go see one of our alumni and I asked him for a $2,500 gift to the annual appeal. This is, I mean, this is probably 2002. So $2,500 was still a pretty big annual appeal gift. And he had already made his campaign gift. So I, I just was there seeing other people called on him, went and asked for an annual appeal gift of $2,500. Yeah. And he said, Peter, I, I, I really like you. I do, Peter. I, I need you to understand something. 
He said, where did you grow up? I said, Amarillo, Texas. He said, did your dad graduate from college? And I said, no, my dad served 20 years in the military and makes his living making dentures. Your mom didn't graduate from college either, did she? And I said, no, sir. Um, but they raised four kids, a doctor of veterinary medicine, a medical doctor, me, and a yeah. health pro. Uh, and he said, Peter, I, your parents are awesome, and they've clearly raised a beautiful family and are amazing people. But their economics are radically different than my family's economics. And he said, your worldview of fundraising and your worldview of money comes through the lens of your growth, growing up experience. He said, Peter, how much did the house you grew up cost? And I said, well, truth of the matter is my parents bought that house in 1976 for $24,000. And he said, so listen, I've been very blessed. I came from a family that had some money initially, got an MBA from Stanford or Kellogg or one of those schools. He said, I am significantly more wealthy than your family. And he said, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying that to help you realize because you work for my school. I care about the Citadel a lot more than you do. And he said, what I want you to realize, there's a whole bunch of us out here who our worldview of money is radically different than yours. He said, a $2,500 gift for me is a go-away gift. I mean, I, I give at least 20 organizations a year 10 grand each. Yeah. And I love the Citadel. I mean, I ought to be doing at least that or more every year. But I yeah. never have because nobody ever asked me. And he said, you just cannot have the worldview that $2,500 is this massive amount of money, which it is for you and your family. And I get yeah. it. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I just want you to know my worldview is 10 grand is not that big a gift. And yeah. 100 grand yeah. is I have to think about it. Yeah. So, it, but that's a profound lesson for the fundraiser. We cannot put yes. our own cloak of learned experience on our donor. You know? And and he that I thought that was one of the best lessons I ever learned because then I didn't I wasn't afraid to ask rich people for money anymore. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly it. And and I was thinking of I think I was thinking about that this morning or yesterday just about how I think one of the reasons we under ask so frequently, especially early on in our career, is exactly what you said because we grew up in an environment where ten thousand dollars was like. That's what people win in the lottery, kind of thing, and and exactly. For, uh, so so yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great point. You know, um, my, my wife and I uh, we made a, a pledge to our our parish campaign here as part of our, our capital campaign in Oklahoma City, and it, and for us, it's it's a car payment. You know, it's. 350 yeah. bucks a month for the next five years. And um, it is amazing though, the reality that of the learned experience of making that sacrificial gift for us, how that impacts my worldview on asking others for money. When you, when you have skin in the game yourself and yeah. sacrificial skin in the game, it's very helpful to then extrapolate. Well, how can I ask other people uh, for meaningful sacrifice as well? All right. Another yeah. story. Um, yeah. I was next story. The Citadel, uh, again, 
uh, I got to know these two bachelors. Um, they lived in Columbia. I was in Charleston. It's an hour and a half drive. And every time I drove through Columbia or went to Columbia or on my way somewhere else in South Carolina, I would go see them. And I, I drove all over the state of South Carolina seeing Citadel grads all the time. So I'd go see them a lot. And these two old guys in their 70s, they sat in their easy chairs in the living room. They shared a house together. Neither had ever gotten married. Their dad had uh, television stations. And when he died, they ultimately sold the television stations. And so they were quite wealthy. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, one day I was with them. And they every time I went, they asked about the campaign and how the campaign was going. And this is the first time the Citadel had really done a big campaign. They'd raised $15, 20000000 million off and on different projects over the years. But this was a $100 million effort. And But they kept asking the question, you know, where's your lead gift? How are you going to ensure success? And because we had talked about what a lead gift is and why it was important to a campaign and setting yeah. momentum and campaigns are about momentum as much as anything else. And um, they were more and more concerned about how long it was taking to get to the place where we had a really big gift to set the stage for success. Because in their mind, the Citadel could not fail. You set a hundred million dollar yeah. goal. You better get through it. You better exceed it. Um, and, uh, and I, I remember a meeting where, where I was talking to the two of them and, and one of them said, well, how are you going to ensure that this happens? And I said, listen, we're, we're still getting to know people. We, we will ask for these gifts. I said, we could ask you guys. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you, we have to have people who know enough about the projects, who know enough about the college, who care enough about all these things to, to be willing to consider and discern that kind of investment. And I still remember saying, well, maybe you should. Yeah. Uh, and so sure enough, sent the president and one of their friends and my boss on the visit to go ask them for $10 million. They, um, they were considering it about a week later, one of the brothers died. Uh, you know, had we asked a few weeks earlier, maybe they would have both been part of the decision-making process, but the, sur mm. the surviving brother basically made the gift. Wow. Uh, Five-year pledge, two million a year for five years. Wow. And I'll tell you something interesting. Wow. <laughs> he made his first pledge of $2 million. And this is a great insight because this happens all the time in capital campaigns. First pledge of $2 million, Second payment of $8 million. He didn't want wow. the debt burden hanging over him. He was getting on an wow. age himself. You know, there are a lot of people who make five-year pledges who pay them early because they don't. They view it as an obligation and and want to get out from underneath. Might as well get it done. Exactly. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that, that was my first really big gift. Ten million is is awesome. And and about how old were you at the time? Twenty-seven. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We, yeah, we, so, no, so that's again, not true. That's not true. That's not true. I was, I got married at 29 and that we were in Charleston. So I was, I was 30. I was okay. 30. Yeah. So you're still a, a young guy. So I, I think that's a, I think that's a great story though. Cause so many people get hung up on, I hate this idea that you've got to be a certain age to, uh, have a meaningful relationship that leads to a significant gift. And, you know, one of the things some, <laughs> someone once told me, you know, like people, 
people of that wealth want to meet with somebody that's a peer. And it's like, you're not a peer. Like, few of us are peers with people who make $10 million a year. So, uh, people, people who give because they care about a ministry want to know that you care about that ministry. Right. Yeah. Uh, Um, here's my last story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Please. (laughs) I told you about the trustee program at the John Paul II cultural center, give a hundred thousand dollars. You're kind of institutionalized with the, with the JP two center. Yeah, uh, and and by that we every other year we took a trip to Rome and took the trustees and they'd get to go into the Clementine Hall in the in the Vatican City and go meet John Paul II and get a picture. Um, I was on the bus home from dinner one night back to the hotel with a group of donors and I'm sitting at the back of the bus with a family, a very simple, loving family that had. Uh, kids and um, they were in there at that time, probably sixties. Uh, he, he had a lawnmower repair business yeah, and a lawnmower uh, then became, and it grew and then they had a series of several stores, but it, at, at its heart, he was a lawnmower repair guy and, and sold lawnmowers. And anyhow, uh, he had clearly done well because he was on this trip and, I didn't know them very well, but we got to talking about kind of what was important in our lives. Yeah. And I was a young guy at that time. I was, um, that would have been 2000 and uh, no, it would have been 2000. So uh, I was 27. And uh, we got into a, a conversation about kind of what's important. And they expressed to me that evening in the back of the bus, the same thing that many, many other families and people of a certain age express, and that is that they were terrified that their children and their grandchildren would be disconnected from the church that they were so in love with. You know, or, or will our kids go to mass? Will our kids get to know the church? Will our kids get to know Jesus? And will their, will their kids do the same? And um, I made an offhand comment. I said, well, you know, you could make the gift to make all of your children trustees of the John Paul II Cultural Center. Yeah. And then they would be instantly institutionally connected to Pope St. John Paul II for life and be invited on these trips and be engaged with these people that, that uh, you care so much about. And, uh, They, they they kind of looked over at me like that I uh, that's a great idea but okay um, there's ten of them <laughs> yeah and so they gave a million dollars wow. to make each one of their ten kids a trustee at the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center wow and and their ten kids then became involved in that program over time. But it, it was the love of a mom and dad who wanted to, to find a way for their children to kind of be part and parcel of the kind of institutional church. I mean, the JP2 Center were founded by a cardinal and very, very Vatican engaged. You know, this is not the little local parish stuff in, in your diocese. This is, you know, and, and that's what they wanted. And, and it, but, but it was a profound thing because I have heard over and over and over again in my career. Uh, particularly in Catholic fundraising, that, you know, I want my children and grandchildren to be part of what I'm part of. 
Yes. And, and that's very intergenerational transfer of not only wealth, but values is a profound topic. Um, Anyway, I hope that's helpful to some of your folks that get some ideas about some visits and, yeah, th- th- this was amazing, Peter. These stories were tremendous, and I'm sure this is going to be a very popular episode. So we might even, if you'd be so gracious in the future, uh, get back on again to to share a few more because this this is incredible. So thank you for sharing everything and just all the tremendous work you've done for the church. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it, and I I, I just wish you all the best luck with this podcast. Take care. That was Peter DeCaratry with the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to stay up to date on the show, you can like One Visit Away on Facebook or connect with me, Kevin Fitzpatrick, on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for the One Visit Away email list by clicking the link in the notes section of this episode. If you really want to help the show grow, please personally share this episode with other development professionals. And again, everybody, if you want to hear Peter's full history and how he got into development and his career, stick around after the uh, outro music, and I'll put that, it's about 10, 15 minutes of that conversation. I hope Peter's words have inspired you to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from one of your prospects coming to your office and aggressively asking you why you asked him for so much money and then him giving one of the largest gifts of your campaign. Yeah, of course. So you have been in fundraising at a very high level for a long time. Could you give everybody a brief background about your history and your career? Well, I can give a background about my history and career. I'm not sure I can be brief. My my wife teases me that I don't know how to tell this story <laughs> briefly, but um, just the... As brief as I can, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, uh, in a um, household with my father, who was a Mexican-American immigrant, and my mom, who was from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and grew up in a Catholic family, uh, started school at West Texas State University in Canyon, Texas, and ultimately transferred to Texas A&M in College Station. Uh, when I transferred to A&M as a sophomore, I met uh, uh, this young priest, Father Mike Sis, who is now Bishop Mike Sis of San Angelo. Um, and I asked him why he had such a dumpy old building for the campus ministry at Texas A&M. And that was 1993. And uh, Father Mike said, well, uh, you know, we've been talking about building a new building for years, but we never really had anybody to work on it. And I said, well, I'll help. Uh, I had done a little bit of political fundraising. Uh, and so I went over to the library, read some books. And I came back and I said, Father Mike, this is going to be a piece of cake. We're going to go ask 2,000 people to give us $2,000. Um <laughs> It will it'll be done in six weeks, no worries. And he said, well, that's great. That's great here. Um, why, don't we, why don't we get a committee just in case it might take a little longer? Um, he was great. But Father Mike uh, uh, led the effort, and we raised $4.9 million over the intervening three and a half years. I finally graduated after going full and part and off and on time for a long time in December of 96 uh, with a degree in speech communication. So I went from St. Mary's to work for CCS, which is one of the largest fundraising consulting firms in the world. I went into the Chicago division and was very blessed to work on several projects, uh, a Catholic high school in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Father Gabriel Richard High School. 
Also at CCS, I worked on a project in Washington called the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center. Um, the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center, which I'll tell you about a couple of gift stories from that later, but uh, it'll go down in history as one of the great fundraising achievements of the church, an idea of a cardinal in Detroit to to build a, essentially a presidential library for Pope John Paul II in D.C. Uh, started with zero prospects, zero donors. In, in, in a real way, every Catholic was a prospect. In a real way, there were no real prospects. Um, but yeah. over many years and lots of ups and downs, uh, that project ended up raising. Uh, when I left, I took it over. It had raised $40 million. We, when I left two years later, it had raised just over $76 million. Wow. Um, and I was there through the opening. And it was great uh, in time of my life. Got to meet Pope John Paul II, Saint Saint John Paul II, um, wow. and 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 pretty cool everything about it. Um, but it's a great example of it doesn't matter how much money you raise if if the people in charge can't stay in budget, and if there's not a meaningful mission and case for support that has revenue and expenses within a budget dynamic that works, it doesn't matter how much money you raise. Um, yeah. and so they eventually went bankrupt. Um, the Knights of Columbus wow. bought the John Paul II cultural center out of bankruptcy, essentially. I mean, they took it over and, yeah. but De- the Archdiocese of Detroit, which had some of the debt from the center, just kind of had to eat the debt. But the, the, thanks be to God, the Knights of Columbus have renovated the building and turned it into a beautiful national shrine for St. John Paul II. And it's a fantastic place to go visit and learn about the life of Pope John Paul II. And, his ministry and, and legacy. And it's, it's exactly what we always hoped it would be. It's just yeah. owned by somebody else. And the Knights of Columbus, thanks be to goodness. I mean, they, they have the resources to run yeah. it long-term as a shrine. So it's really great. After wow. that project, um, I was working on a, on a final project for CCS in Dallas, Texas for the meeting professionals, international foundation, about as far as you can get from the church. Um, and the, MPI Foundation raised money for the educational programs around people who do professional meetings. And I was doing that project in late uh, summer 2001. And on September 11th, 2001, the World Trade Center was hit. And all of our major potential donors were, you know, Hyatt, Starwood, Hilton, Marriott, American Airlines, Delta. All of our potential donors went away overnight. And uh, wow. that project was paused, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And about that same time, an old friend of mine from College Station had been named the executive director of the Citadel Foundation in Charleston, South Carolina. And he asked me to come work for him and run a campaign for the Citadel in Charleston. And I did that. Uh, great experience in Charleston. I, my wife and I got married that year in early '02 in May. Um, and we were there in Charleston for three years. And, um, but all during that time, I was still kind of doing some help with my old passion, which was campus ministry. And I would go to the annual campus ministry fundraising conference called the CCMA Development Institute and do, you know, little talks on how to, how to ask people for money and how to do fundraising. And, uh, my wife and I were thinking about going to volunteer abroad, uh, you know, Jesuit volunteer corps, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah. I went to the Development Institute in 2003 and saw my old friend John Flynn from the University of Kansas. And he and I had some discussions and a priest friend of mine, Father uh, Tom Firestone, said, Peter, you going to volunteer abroad is nuts. Why would you even think about that? Don't do it. If you want to do anything to help the church, start 
a little company and help us learn how to do fundraising in campus ministry because this is where the future of the church is. Yeah, and people will pay you. You you can you can make a living at this. And so Father Tom Firestone made that suggestion. One thing led to another. John and I founded Petrus Development in 2004, uh, and we began Petrus. Um, Petrus is still a growing going concern. John and I owned it for the first six years together. Um, and he went to go work for Focus. He's the National Director of Philanthropy for the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And I, shortly thereafter, went to uh, work for the Archdiocese of Brisbane in Australia. Uh, got recruited, and it was a wonderful life experience to go to Brisbane. Um, did that for a few years, and my wife and I were pregnant with our fourth child, and I had the chance to go to Chicago and work for Francis Cardinal George. Uh, Cardinal George had launched the To Teach You Christ Is campaign, which was a $350 million capital campaign for uh, parishes and schools in the diocese. Um, the Cardinal was dying of cancer when I went to work for him. He lived another few months um, after I got there, and then Archbishop Supich came, and uh, I stayed a couple years, and eventually um, we, my lifestyle in Chicago was tough. Uh, you know, We lived 22 miles from the office, and it took me just over 90 minutes to get to work each day. Ugh. Uh, yeah, an hour and a half of your life, each direction, it, it yeah. just it was tough, you know. Anyway, and Chicago's expensive, and the campaign was doing well, and we turned it around, and it was a really big project and a lot of energy. And anyway, I, I started asking around with some friends if they thought I should stay in Chicago. Should I leave? Should I stay at the Archdiocese? Should I not? And a friend of mine reached out to me and said, I know the perfect place for you, Peter. Uh, and he arranged a conversation between me and Archbishop Paul Coakley here in Oklahoma City. And, uh, you know, it's just been a fantastic move for our family. I'm wow. actually sitting in my office here three and a half hours from the house I grew up in in Amarillo, Texas. Wow. Um, and I'm two and a half hours from the house my mother grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So wow. nobody in my family would have ever expected me to come back to Oklahoma. Uh, yeah. Where my yeah. Mom grew up, but here we are. So uh, long and career. Even, uh, even more importantly, how far is your commute now? Uh, yes. I went from 90 minutes to nine minutes. Wow. Uh, that is awesome. <laughs> I, w I will tell you a, a life lesson learned. I went to Chicago in part because it was the chance to run the biggest thing ever. You know? Yeah. LA has now launched a campaign that's bigger. I don't know how it's doing with the coronavirus pandemic, but but nobody had ever run a bigger campaign than the one in Chicago. And it was my chance to go read the, lead that and be be the guy and, and be part of the the excitement of running the biggest campaign. But truth of the matter is it was terrible for our lifestyle, for our family, for my ability to be a father to my children. And yeah. there's so many more important things to me in life now. And I realized that, and, and there were other reasons to leave Chicago too, but it all tied together. And truth of the matter is here, I have a much, much better work-life balance. I, I just signed up to be the program director for the Institute for Catholic Philanthropy at the University of Mary. We're going to teach people how to do fundraising in a serious way. And they can yeah. do that as part of an MBA or a master of business and administration. And uh, it's just a, a great place for me to be. And Archbishop Coakley has been fantastic. And, and frankly, our fundraising success here has been dramatic. And, and that's just because we have, we've been asking for gifts in a professional way. And they yeah. just had never done that before here. So, right. Um, it's been a good run. Well, that's the end of Peter's introduction. Thank you all so much for sticking around through the end and for listening to this incredible conversation with Peter.